Good morning. Let me get this thing on. I hate it. It feels so weird. Is it working? Yeah, yeah it's working. You know, I tried preaching down there last week. I know Bob prefers to be down there. I don't like to be above people, but I love this thing because it hides how much I fidget because I get nervous <laughs> speaking in front and I'm like doing all this number and stuff. So at least you can't see that as well. So that's good. Let me get situated real quick. Have any of you ever watched one of those cartoons? Uh, I think it was usually in like Looney Tunes where like one of the characters is bebopping along all happy as can be and they step on a rake and it smacks them right in the face. Yeah. That's how my week started. Like I went, I went into Monday pretty, pretty content, pretty, pretty enthusiastic actually. And as soon as I woke up, I, I shared, hang on, I got too much stuff. I shared last week that I work with at-risk youth. And uh, part of our job is reporting, uh, doing, um, like we, we report on notes, data, data entry, that kind of thing. And I get this message from my regional lead and she's like, hey, did you get that note about all the missing data in your forms? And I'm like, first thing Monday morning, I wake up perfectly happy and this is the first thing I read. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, missing data. Like I'm meticulous about data entry, meticulous. And uh, like I'm scrambling, I, I answer back, I'm like, what are you talking about, missing data? And she's like, yeah, and a lot of the, the roster, like your, 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 your roster, there's a lot of data missing on a lot of your youth that you work with. Like on who? And I'm looking through and I, I, pull, up, I pull up all the forms and it's just gone. And I remember in, inputting all of this. We're talking three months worth of data, gone. And to make it even worse, it's two days before my evaluation. Two days before my evaluation, this is gone. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. What is this like some type, it's like a satanic attack? Like what's happening here? And I'm, I'm praying, oh my goodness, we need a bigger one. I'm praying and I'm like, vindicate me on this. Vindicate me, because I know I did this right, you know? And two minutes later, I'm listening to the radio. I'm in my car, I'm listening to the radio, and I kid you not, the pastor on the radio reads a verse about, your vindication is from me. <laughs> okay, all right. I think we're good. I think we're gonna be okay. And I'm still like worrying about it though. And Steph, uh, my wife, she, she had me get my, uh, my uh, iPad that I work from, and we prayed over it. And I'm not kidding, that night, the actual boss, the overall boss, he went into our, our data form, our data processing um, company, and it was all there on the back end, like all the data, he could see it. So he got to see all the data that I input, and then it vanished. No explanation. Just long enough to vindicate everything that I had done, that it was there, I did everything I was supposed to do, and then it just disappeared. And I'm like, thank you. Like, I can deal with that. Like, I can, I can redo the data, but as long as they know that I did my job right, I want that perspective to be there, you know? Because perspective is a powerful thing. If they hadn't seen that from their perspective, it could have looked like I could say anything. Yeah, I did all that. But from their perspective, it's not there, right? So when they're doing an evaluation, it looks like I'm just saying that I did something. This hasn't happened to anybody else. Why would it happen to him, you know? From my perspective, I know what I did. 
I know what I did, but they don't know, they don't know what I did. Perspective can lead us astray. Can cause us to view things in ways that aren't, they aren't in alignment with reality. We have an example of this from 2 Samuel chapter 16. It's not primarily what I'm going to be preaching from. I think God's going to have me jumping around a lot. We'll see. <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly where I'm going to go, but I'm going to let him lead me. But in 2 Samuel chapter 16, we come to a, an account from King David's life. And it's late in his reign, and it's, it's after his sin with Bathsheba and the consequences that stained his house all the rest of his days after that. And in this account, we come to the revolt of, of, of his son Absalom. So as a result of some things that had happened in David's life, Absalom grew to hate his father David, and he revolted very successfully. Absalom was able to secure the support of a lot of really important, powerful people in, in Judah, uh, generals and diplomats. And uh, they essentially installed him as king in Jerusalem. And at this point, David's fleeing Jerusalem for his life with the, the small number of individuals that were loyal to him still. And the part I want to look at in particular is as he's fleeing Jerusalem, there's this guy named Shammai. And Shammai was from the house of Saul. And as you'll recall, David was actually the second king of Israel. The first king was a guy named Saul who had rebelled against God God had rejected him and removed him as king, and Saul ultimately died in battle. Shammai was from the house of Saul. He was a Benjamite, like Saul was. And from Shammai's perspective, he hated David. He viewed David as the usurper. He viewed David as the wicked one who had overthrown the house of Saul. And he's following David along, cursing David as David's fleeing. He's throwing stones at him. He's throwing, throwing dirt at him. And he says this in verse 7. Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. Yahweh, he uses God's name, Yahweh has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Saul, or I'm sorry, Shammai, believed that he was speaking the word of God here. What's interesting, it's a half-truth. David was a man of bloodshed. That is true. It's actually why God wouldn't allow David to build the temple because he had blood on his hands. His perspective led him, though, to view David as evil and wicked, because his perspective was limited. Let me tell you something. There is no deception more powerful, more pervasive, and more difficult to break than the deception that leads you to believe that you are righteous or that you are speaking the word of God when you are not. Rarely will you find someone break that deception. So how do we avoid that? In Acts chapter 17, let me turn to it really quick. Paul the apostle, he's on his missionary journeys. He's traveling all over, 
all over that region of the world, planting churches, building churches. And in Acts chapter 17, he had come to a place called Thessalonica. And he did what Paul did. He preached Jesus in the uh, synagogues. And they hated him for it. They rejected it. They got so violent about it that um, the disciples in Thessalonica actually ushered Paul out by night. They brought him to a place called Berea. And when he came to Berea, he did what Paul did, and he went to to the synagogues and preached Jesus, preached Christ crucified. And it says something interesting about the Bereans here. It says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Then it says this, Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. They tested Paul. The great Paul was not above being tested. And they tested Paul against the scriptures. What were scriptures then? Scripture then was what we tend to dismissively refer to as the Old Testament. What that means is they heard what Paul was preaching and they tested it against the scripture. They had what we call the Old Testament to see if it was true, meaning to ensure that Paul was not conflicting with what scripture says. Because if it conflicted, they would have disregarded it, as they should have. But they found that it did not conflict. It did not conflict, therefore they received the truth. This is a sermon for a different day, but the problem is very often what we preach about, Paul does conflict with the Old Testament. This proves that it shouldn't. What Paul taught and preached about Jesus did not conflict with what we have in the revelation from the prophets and from the law. But we should be testing to ensure that we're not engaging in a false perspective like Shammai did. Right? God in uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, he says, it's one of my favorite verses. He says, stand in the roadways and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. My job, when I'm up here, it is not to charismatically or emotionally or theatrically convince you of my opinion. That's not my job. That's not any pastor or preacher's job. My job is to stand in the roadway and say, that way right there. That's the way he says to walk in. Him right there, that's the good shepherd. He's the one you need to follow. That's my job, to point you in the direction of the way. I can't walk the way for you. I can walk it with you. I cannot walk it for you. I cannot believe the truth for you. I cannot follow the shepherd for you. 
I cannot accept the truth for you. All I can do is point in the direction of the way. It's your job as a Berean to search the scripture daily to see if what you're being taught or what you believe is true. And if it's not, to align with his truth, not twist his word to justify your opinion or anyone else's. But what does that look like in practice? I want to contrast a couple individuals from Scripture. The first I want to look at is in Numbers chapter 14. I'm not going to read this entire passage. I'm just going to kind of summarize partly. It's the Exodus event. So the people of Israel, being led by Moses, they had crossed the Red Sea. Uh, They had seen the destruction of the Egyptian army. They had seen countless miracles. They'd been led by the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had seen the presence of the Most High. They had received the Ten Commandments. They saw the mountain covered by thick darkness and fire. They witnessed Moses coming down with his face radiating with the glory of God. They had more proof than anyone could ever ask for. More proof than anyone should ever need. And they come to the bank of the Jordan River. On the other side is the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and to them. They get 10 spies or 12 spies together, one spy for each tribe. And they send them out to spy out the land on the other side. And they see everything that God promised. They see a land flowing with milk and honey. They see incredible things, but they also see a group of people called the Canaanites. They were ferocious. They were giant. They were monstrous. They were frightening. But I guess they forgot that their God is bigger. The spies come back. And 10 of the spies rabble-rouse the people and say, we can't do this. These people are too fierce. We've been led into a trap. We need to go back to Egypt. Spend all night convincing the people to rebel in this way. And the people agree. Why did they do it? Why do we do it? He proves himself to us time and time again. Still, we refuse to trust in him. Why? Well, the people decide to appoint a leader for themselves to replace Moses to bring them back to Egypt, back into bondage. And then two of the spies stand up including Caleb. Caleb. Oh, Caleb. And he stands nose to nose with this rebellious people, with this violent people, with this evil mob. 
and he says, the land which we pass, this is starting in verse seven, by the way, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh. Do not rebel. And do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. And the people pick up stones to stone them to death. Caleb stands up in faith. Caleb stands up in trust against this mob. And their response is to stone him. You won't always see the results that you want to see when you speak the word God has given you to speak. Caleb didn't see a revival that day. Caleb didn't see a throng of people saying, yes, praise God, let's take the land that day. The response to Caleb was to attempt to stone him. Now, I just want to, as a side note, I know, I know it's hard to look at your assembly and not see the numbers you would like to see. I know it's hard seeing people move away, pass away, leave. I know it's hard to look around and not see every seat filled in this place. But God does not primarily care about your numbers. He doesn't. He cares about your hearts. That is all he cares about. Caleb did not go back into Yahweh's, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Caleb did not go back into Yahweh's presence and have Yahweh say, I like you, Caleb, but you didn't accomplish much today. That was kind of a failure. That is not what he told him. We'll see that in a second. He cares about the hearts of his servants. You need to remember that. You need to remember that. So, uh, as I said, the people pick up stones to stone them to death, and Yahweh intervenes in an incredible way. Descends his Shekinah glory upon the place, and the people shrink back in terror. It's hard to convey this in text, but I think you can kind of imagine what that might have been like. I, like, I imagine smoke and fire and an earthquake. This was terrifying. I promise you this was terrifying. It froze the people from doing the evil they were about to do. 
and then Yahweh speaks to Moses. We'll get back to Caleb in a second, but I do want to take a moment to look at this passage here because I think it's important. Yahweh speaks to Moses and he says, I am done with this people. They have tested me ten times. Ten times in the short space between the Red Sea and here. They refuse to, re to obey me. They refuse to trust in me. They rebel every chance they get. I'm going to destroy them right now. And out of you, I'm going to make an even bigger nation, a greater nation. And Moses, after the people had just picked up stones to stone him to death, pleads to Yahweh on their behalf to rescue them. If that doesn't tell you why Moses was chosen and exalted, I don't know what will. That was the heart of Moses. These people had just tried to murder him and replace him, along with Joshua and Caleb and Aaron. And his response is, Yahweh, don't, don't kill him. And I love the reason for his response. The reason is, what will the people say about you if you do this? What will the perspective of the Gentiles be if you do this? Moses was concerned about the perspective of other people and how it would diminish God's fame in the world. <laughs> That's a heart surrendered to God. That's what a surrendered heart looks like. And then Moses prays this, and it's a fascinating prayer. He's, well, prayer, he's speaking to God. Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 18, it says, Moses says, Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He's reminding God of his own heart. Not that God needs reminding, but I think he likes to hear us say it. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations. I struggled with this verse for a long time, for a long time, because it doesn't seem to make any sense. We'll come back to it in just a second. But how can he forgive iniquity and not clear the guilty? I always struggled with that until I dug a little bit deeper. Continuing verse 19, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word. The reason I think this is important is I believe God here is giving us a, a glimpse of his plan of salvation in these verses. So backing up, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty. That word forgiving there in the Hebrew is nasa, nasa, and it literally means to lift or to carry, to carry. So essentially what he's saying here is, I'm going to carry the iniquity of the people, but I'm not clearing their guilt. Basically what he's saying, I believe, judgment is declared on account of their sin. That's the guilt. Judgment for guilt is declared, but he's not going to apply it yet. He's delaying the application of judgment. 
It's like the judge in a courtroom saying, I sentence you to X amount of years, but you can go home because I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to make you fulfill your sentence yet. He's delaying the application of judgment. But that word pardon, pardon, I pray the iniquity of this people. And then he says, I have pardoned them. That's a different word. It seems like the same thing in English. Forgive, pardon seems the same. In Hebrew, it's not. In Hebrew, it's a word, salak. Salak in Hebrew. Before I define it, that form of forgiveness or pardon can only be meted out by God scripturally. People cannot salak you. They can forgive you. They cannot pardon or salak you. We find this word in Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's when Jeremiah receives a vision of the salvation brought to us by Jesus, the new covenant. And he says, starting in verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them That's Torah in Hebrew. We're told in the New Covenant context that the Torah or law is written on our heart, not done away with and abolished. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, No Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. By the way, that hasn't happened yet. We're entering into that. We're in the process of entering into that. If that had happened yet, I wouldn't be standing up here. Preaching wouldn't be necessary anymore because everybody would know the full truth already. For I will pardon their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Salak means to overlook punishment without waiving debt. In other words, taking the punishment owed to you and transferring it onto someone else. What does that sound like? Jesus. That's what Salak is. It's God lifting up our iniquity from off of us and transferring it onto Jesus so that we never have to pay the penalty. That is beautiful. And he gives one of the first glimpses of this salvation plan in the context of one of the worst rebellions recorded in Scripture. (laughs) Because his heart has always been to pardon us. But then he continues. Starting in verse 22, after he says that he will pardon them, he says this about the people standing right in front of him. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. Remember that and let that resonate in your soul. Have not listened to my voice. Are you listening to his voice? Are we listening to his voice? That is something we should ask ourselves daily. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers 
nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. There are consequences for rejecting him and his way. But my servant, Caleb, oh, Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, him I will bring into the land which he entered. Because he had a different spirit and followed me fully. He didn't care about Caleb's success in convincing people with his speech. He cared about Caleb's heart. And he rewarded it. Now, even the name Caleb is fascinating. In Hebrew, Caleb can mean dog. But it can also be a compound word. Kal, leb. Whole, heart. Even Caleb's name literally means whole, hearted. Caleb gave God his whole heart, and that's what God wants from us. And Caleb walked this out in practice. And Caleb was rewarded for it. It's a matter of two attributes. Fidelity, fidelity or covenant loyalty, and devotion. Loving and trusting God first above everyone and everything else. That's what Caleb demonstrated here. You know, we find this expressed in the commandments. I want to look at the first two commandments. It's in Exodus chapter 20. And I know Bob read this last week, but I want to read these two again. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Notice that same phrase there, visiting the iniquity on the children. It's the same thing that Moses had prayed here. What is an idol? Before I answer that, I want to look at the other individual that I want to contrast here. And I know this may put us a little over time, but that's okay because we love God more than our own time, right? So it's actually in Judges chapter 17. And it's an account about an individual named Micah, not the prophet Micah. I call this the bad Micah to differentiate because it's easy to get confused. And he's only referenced here, and I believe one other chapter he's brought up again in Judges, but it's a fascinating account. And I'm going to read through it. I'm actually, I actually am going to read through this and maybe make some comments as we go through, but I think it's important because it highlights a couple very, very critical points about what an idol is. Starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by Yahweh. Okay, pausing there, we know nothing about this incident. This, this starts sort of out of nowhere in Scripture. 
All we really know is that Micah had stolen silver from his mother. He heard her place a curse on it, and out of fear, he brings it back. That's really all we know. That's really all we need to know. And she blesses him in Yahweh's name. Okay. Your, your Bible probably says Lord there. Lord is just a replacement for Yahweh in Hebrew, and that is the name of the one true God, not an idol. That's really important. Yahweh is the name of God himself, not an idol. This is really important. Verse 3, he then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to Yahweh, to Yahweh, for my son to make a graven image. I dedicate the silver to Yahweh for my son to make an idol. This is after the Ten Commandments, by the way. They know better. They know the name of Yahweh. I guarantee you they know what the Ten Commandments say. And still, she's here dedicating an idol in the name of Yahweh. Putting a Yahweh tag on something or a Jesus tag on something does not sanctify what he calls sin. It doesn't. If he says it's sin, claiming to do it in his name doesn't change the fact that it's sin. Now, therefore, I will return them to you, she said. So when he, Micah, returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. He's setting up a false religion in his own house. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's a fascinating statement, too. I look around at the church sometimes, and I think that we're repeating that error. I can't imagine why else we would have tens of thousands of different denominations, each doing things differently and each interpreting his word however they see fit. His word is very clear. His expectations are very clear. His commands are very clear. When we come to a command that we don't like and we say, eh, I don't think that applies to me, you're doing what seems right in your own heart or in your own mind for committing this error. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite. Remember, the Levites served in the temple. They were the ones dedicated to serving as priests in the temple. And he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city from Bethlehem and Judah to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And the Levite said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I, might find, I may find a place. Micah then said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. He's a paid pastor, essentially. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. 
This last verse is the most important one, I think. Then Micah said, now I know that Yahweh will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. Couple things to note here. Again, Micah's idolatry was done in the name of Yahweh. He did it in the name of God. He thought he was honoring God with his idolatry. How often do we do the same? How often do we claim to honor Jesus through practices that he calls sin? And this last verse, surely Yahweh will prosper me because this Levite showed up. Mike is thinking this was a divine appointment. This is a blessing. Things are going well. And this would not have happened unless God was pleased with what I'm doing. Therefore, he's going to bless me. I see Christians fall into two traps. Two traps simultaneously. When things are going well, they'll say, I'm being blessed. That blessing must be coming from Yahweh, from God, from Jesus. Therefore, I must be doing everything right. I'm going to continue what I'm doing regardless of what Scripture says. And then when things go wrong, they say, everything's going wrong. Everything's falling apart. The devil's attacking me. And the devil's attacking me because I'm doing everything right. So I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing regardless of what Scripture says. What room or space have you given God to correct you in that? No matter what happens in your life, it's either because God is blessing you or because the devil's attacking you, and in both cases, you're doing everything right. How are you giving God space to correct you or convict you or to chastise you? I'm telling you, God is sovereign. Everything comes into your life because he allows it, but you've got to give him space to correct your pathway, to tell you this road that you're walking, not good. That over there is the ancient path. That's where the good shepherd is walking that. We've got to give him space, but we don't. What is an idol? An idol is anything in your life that you revere or follow in a way that you should only ever revere or follow him. Let me say that again. An idol is anything, anything, anything in your life or anyone in your life that you revere or follow in a way that you should only ever revere and follow him. That can be a lot of things. It can be a tradition. It can be a doctrine. It can be a tree. It can be a long dead saint that we've deified and given powers of Godhead to. And I think you know what I'm talking about. It can be a pastor or a preacher. It can be a loved one that you view as a role model. It can be anything or anyone that is leading you on a pathway that he calls sinful. That is an idol. You know, I think I'm going to stop there and I'm going to close by returning to Jeremiah chapter 16. And I want to finish that passage because I think it's important. Thus says Yahweh, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But the people said, we will not walk in it.
and I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregations, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people. The fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. This is your unchanging God speaking. Are you a Caleb or are you a Micah? Who has your heart? Will you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much for all that you've given. We thank you for all your goodness and your mercy and your love. We thank you that you do lift our iniquity off of us, that you carry it for us, that you transfer it, that you pay the penalty for us in the person of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, who lives, whom we praise with all of our heart. I pray that everyone here would surrender their hearts to you, that I would surrender my heart to you. If we are fragmented in our hearts, if we are fragmented in our souls, I pray that you would bind us up, that you would bind up our brokenness, that you would cast away our sin, that you would reveal to us any uncleanness, any idols in our heart, that you would grind them to powder, that you would free us from that penalty. Guide us on the ancient path. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might hear your voice and have a whole heart like Caleb to obey it. I pray that you would lead us to search the scriptures daily, to learn more about you, but to m most importantly, to be baptized by your spirit, to have your spirit rain down upon us, to fill us with your word of truth, with your guidance, with your counsel, and to know your heart for us, your love for us, and your desire for us. I pray that you would be with each individual here on their way, that you would protect them and guide them and guard them and speak directly to their soul, to their spirit, and cause them to follow after you. Again, I thank you. I praise you. I magnify your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>